murder and scandal. Melbourne certainly has had its fair share. And you may have guessed that here at Dead and Buried, we have a bit of a fascination for digging into the depths of depravity and wallowing in the filth that lies there. So today we have a special treat for you, old lucky listener. Welcome to Dead and Buried's Halloween special! I'm Lee Hooper. And I'm Carly Godden. And this is episode three of Dead and Buried, a series which delves deep into the underground history of Melbourne. Today we'll bring you tales that will knock your knees and curl your hair. First, we chat to a bona fide expert on Melbourne and Victorian folklore, who's uncovered more than one ghostly tale in his time. You'll also hear one of Melbourne's very first published haunted house stories, guaranteed to send chills up the strongest of spines and send you cowering under your bed covers. Finally, we'll hear the grim tale of the body in the box, in tribute to one of the victims of a once terrible social taboo, unearthed by dead and buried researcher Phoebe Wilkins. Stick around. Many of us are partial to dressing up at Halloween, and perhaps even hiding, then leaping out and frightening some unsuspecting victims. But it's something you'd only ever do on this particular holiday, right? Well, we spoke to Dr David Waldron about people in early Victoria and Melbourne who spooked all year round for fun, revenge and sometimes reasons even more sinister. Dead and Buried hit the road to the town of Ballarat to seek out this lover of true and twisted tales. My name is Dr David Waldron. I'm a lecturer in history and anthropology at Federation University in Ballarat. And I'm speaking now from the former administrative offices of the Ballarat Jail, founded in 1860, and we're currently overlooking the courtyard where many prisoners were taken and, in fact, 13 prisoners were, in fact, executed. People to Australia came from all over the world, and in many cases there were people who came to bring their fortune Quite often there were people from rural and rustic areas which still held these sorts of beliefs very close and dear to their hearts. You'll commonly find in Old Melbourne and Ballarat and Bendigo and Geelong homes things like uh, witch marks placed above doorways and chimneys. You might find witch bottles walled up in the fireplace, which is bottles filled with hair and pins. You can quite commonly find animals and uh, skulls or a single lady's shoe. Um, under the threshold and these are remnants of folklore that was brought to Australia from all over the world and we had a particular synergy here where these stories became integrated and gained new life and new vibrancy. The other point is that in Australia we had quite a dark past, a past that we don't like to talk about, a past that involved Aboriginal massacres, that involved the abuse of convicts, the abuse of mentally ill, involved prostitution, crime, And indeed, for a lot of that early history, Australia was to some extent lawless. We don't like to talk about them, but those dark parts of our history are still there. And one of the things we do is we deal with it through folklore. We deal with it through ghost stories. We deal with it through creating legends about the things that we can't really talk about openly, but nonetheless, everyone knows happened. Playing the ghost was the euphemism used for where people would dress up in elaborate costumes as ghosts of monsters and attempt to scare each other. (coughs) I don't know where this frog came from. It's all right. It's the ghosts in here. They're like, don't talk about it. (laughs) We've been through enough in this place. (laughs) 
Sorry. Um, many notable examples. There was one from Essendon of a man who'd taken a suit of armour and he spray-painted it with glow-in-the-dark paint and then wrote, prepare to meet thy doom and went strolling around at night trying to scare young children. He apparently approached an 11-year-old boy at one stage and said he was going to chop his head off. Incidentally, a darker side of this is quite often people used it to conceal crime or assault or even sexual assault, but one man was accosting uh, young women dressed as some sort of ghoul with his face streaked with glow-in-the-dark phosphorus paint, gloves with clawed fingers and a coffin lid strapped to his back. And one of the ways to think about this, of course, is in the Australian context. You had a lot of rhetoric in the late 19th century that superstition was irrational, that people's folklore and heritage, beliefs in ghosts was something only foolish and credulous people would do. It's very difficult to have your folklore and heritage mocked. This was also the high point of Gothic literature. People were reading stories ranging from Wuthering Heights to Dracula. So these stories were very much in people's mind with regards to popular culture. A perfect storm, if you like, of ghost obsession. Ghosts are very much on the brain. And if I could scare an educated English gentleman out of his mind, even if only for a moment, to make him believe for a second that there really were ghosts, I've achieved something successful. We asked David to read one such classic tale from this period, a tale about things that go bump in the night. This story was published anonymously by a newly arrived Brit on the 20th of October 1888 in the Argus newspaper. Pull your loved ones close and be prepared to feel the fear of the haunted house of Melbourne. At the time of the dispatch of Australian troops to the Sudan in 1888, it was proudly declared by the colonial press that Australia had come of age. But no country can be properly considered to have reached maturity until it has attained the dignity of having haunted houses. If taking part in the wars of nations is to be considered the coming of age, the possession of haunted houses is certainly to be regarded as cutting the wisdom teeth. I consider myself, therefore, in one respect, peculiarly fortunate in being able to announce that Australia has now attained to this dignity. Melbourne possesses a veritable haunted house. I say that I am in one respect peculiarly fortunate, but I am in the same time especially unfortunate in being the harassed tenant of that house. My house is haunted. Do not smile, reader, in that sceptical manner, but listen to what I have to say. I assure you that my family are frightened out of their wits. My wife, who has often displayed more than feminine courage, is now quite timid and unnerved. Our servants refuse to sleep without a light on in their room. And as to myself, though no one can lightly call me a coward, I am not ashamed to say that the sense of being surrounded by mysterious and unseen agencies is anything but pleasant. Hear my story and judge for yourself. I arrived in Victoria from England in a certain April, having brought my wife and family with me as far as Adelaide. They remained behind to stay with some friends until I made arrangements for housing them in Melbourne, our future home. Once I arrived in Melbourne, I called upon an old schoolfellow. He welcomed me with colonial heartiness and then explained that he and his family were about to take a trip to England, and he offered me the use of his magnificent suburban home while he was away. Such an offer, of course, could not be politely refused, and accordingly I took possession, suspecting nothing. There were no ivy-clad passages or recesses, 
No ruined battlements, no mouldering crypts or dungeons, no darkened and deserted rooms. The house computed, even according to colonial history, could not be considered an old one. It was built only 18 years earlier in 1870. There had not even been a death in the house. There was no domestic tragedy connected with it, no murder, no foul deeds of an ancient date. Indeed, there was nothing which the most superstitious mind could suppose would lead to the uneasy wandering of disembodied spirits. Having been there a week, however, as I was walking about one bright moonlit evening, in a somewhat melancholy mood, and listening to the sad soughing of the breeze in the pine trees, I was startled by hearing footsteps behind me. I turned to look, thinking it might be the gardener coming from the house. But there was absolutely no one to be seen. I called out, Who's there? But there was no answer. I concluded it must be nothing, and would have taken no further notice of the matter, but on turning to walk towards the house, I heard the footsteps most plainly on the asphalt in front of me. There was no mistaking the matter this time. They were distinct, rapid footsteps approaching nearer and nearer, until when they seemed close up to me, they died away. This was decidedly strange. I went to call the gardener, but found that he was out and his room was locked up. If you think of my lonely position, you will not blame me for feeling not altogether easy. Still, I did not regard the matter seriously, and after going to the house to light my pipe, continued my stroll, not returning, however, to that particular part of the grounds. That night I slept soundly enough and was not disturbed by housebreakers or by anything else beyond the noise of the rats under the basement. Let a man of nervous temperament be placed in a big house all alone, and if, when he has put out his gas and he is just dozing off to sleep with confused thoughts in his brain of mysterious footsteps, such as I had heard that evening, a little mouse begins to gnaw at the wainscot close to the head of his bed. We need not say that he will absolutely be afraid, but he will wish that that little mouse had chosen some other time and place for its midnight operations. The next day I said nothing to the gardener about the footsteps, but mentioned to him the rats were very troublesome, and that I should like him to see that the cats were all in the house the next night. He looked at me with his quaint, grim old face and said, with a peculiar smile to which I gave no significance at the time. Yeah, the rat is very noisy in this house sometimes. Four days afterwards, my wife and little ones arrived by the piano steamer, and I'd forgotten all about the mysterious footsteps. Three days later, we took the opportunity of a clear evening to go out and enjoy the fragrance of the garden walks. We were strolling together along a footpath running parallel to the house, and on the side opposite to the one where I'd heard the strange footsteps. But we were thinking of very different things when my wife said to me all suddenly, Archie, what's that? What is it, Rosie? I replied. I'm sure I heard someone walking on the veranda, she said. Nonsense, dear, I replied. You can see the whole length of the veranda. There's no one there. Nevertheless, I immediately remembered the mysterious invisible pedestrian of the week before. I'm sure I heard footsteps, she replied as we continued our walk. Hark, there they are again. Don't you hear them? I did hear them plainly enough, but I professed not to do so and said 
She was fatigued and overwrought with her recent travels and unpacking. The footsteps this time appeared mixed and halting, as if there were two persons walking in an undecided manner, but they were very distinct, more so than I had previously heard. We discontinued our walk and went in, determined to think no more of the matter. The next day when in town I casually mentioned this matter to a friend. Yes, he said, those footsteps have been heard before, and in one case a lady visitor at that house was so frightened by them she became nervously affected and refused to stay there any longer. During the following six days, nothing more occurred to disturb our peace except the nightly tumult of the rats. On the seventh day, however, a Thursday at about ten o'clock at night, my wife was going upstairs to a portion of the house we'd not yet visited. She'd almost reached the upper landing when she was suddenly startled by the falling of a thick, heavy, black stick, apparently from the ceiling. She uttered an exclamation of alarm, and I found her standing, trembling with a shattered lamp in her hand. The stick was lying where it fell, but though I had the place most carefully searched, there was no sign of anyone having been there recently except ourselves. All the doors and windows were properly fastened, nor could we gain any clue as to where the stick had come from. The mystery of the house was beginning to grow and we could no longer shake from our minds the feeling that there was something uncanny about the place. Matters went on quietly enough for the next week or more and we began to think that we had perhaps given too much play to our imaginations. But on the 4th of June, a Thursday, mark the coincidence of the day, we were awakened in the middle of the night by the most frightful noises it is possible to imagine. I'd scarcely got beyond the stage of preliminary dozing when the room became filled with a most unearthly commotion. I felt myself bathed, as it were, in an undefinable pandemonium of sound. Good gracious, I exclaimed, painfully opening my eyes. Whatever is to do? My poor wife said nothing but jumped out of bed looking pale as a ghost. She turned up the gas and prepared for whatever might happen. It was impossible to make out what the noise was or decide from whence it came. At one time it seemed to be in our own room, filling us entirely. At another it seemed to be rolling about on the roof outside. Now it was apparently oozing up through the floor. And now it seemed to be coming from the nursery, which was next to our room. It was a strange, hollow, quasi-thundering sound. Now like a dozen cannonballs dancing on a hollow floor. Now like muffled drumsticks beating on resounding walls. Now a confused banging and shaking as if a score of demons had been let loose from an infernal bedlam. Presently, the bewildering uproar seems to have broken loose and to be rolling and leaping along the corridor. And then there was a wild, piercing shriek and a violent rattling at our door handle. For my own part, I was at first completely dazed and I must confess unnerved. However, I collected my thoughts, slipped on a dressing gown and hastened to see what was the matter, thinking that the nursemaid who slept in the next room had gone violently mad. On the door being opened, she was, found standing there shivering in the cold, her hair dishevelled and crying hysterically. She blurted out that there was a man in the room, she was sure, that he rattled a stick on the floor five times and made it move towards her. Whereupon she jumped up, rushed out of the room, locked the door and came to us for protection. 
It seemed very improbable there was a man in her room. But it was well to be prepared for the worst, so I got the rifle and cartridges and went out and called the gardener, and we made ready to enter the room. It was myself, in thin night apparel, shivering with cold, my hand on the door key ready to turn it. My wife, white as a sheet with compressed lips, handing me the poker. The old gardener with his grim face was standing behind, fingering the rifle, and there was a chorus of the hysterical nursemaid and the crying children. Now are you ready, I said. All eyes were intent, all hearts were palpitating, and in we rushed, finding, of course, no one. But the maid persisted, saying that the stick in question was not where she placed before going to bed, and none of us had touched it. It must have been moved by someone or something unknown. We retired again for the night, feeling nothing the better for the disturbance. There remains to be explained two things. The tumultuous noise in one room and the mysterious moving of a stick in the other. Sufficient has been said already to show that we are justified in regarding the house as haunted. Mysterious footsteps, dropping and moving of sticks and unearthly noises, not to speak of rustling sounds in the chimney, plaintive moanings from which we'd heard from time to time. They are surely enough to stamp any place as being the abode of the supernatural. But there was one more curious occurrence which is the strangest of all. It is an incident without parallel in the traditions of ghost law. Australia is a new country with new institutions, and one should not, therefore, be surprised to find that Australian ghosts have struck out on new lines. In the old country, ghosts preserve at least some respectability of character. They confine their operations to noises and apparitions. They may rattle chains through the house or present themselves with pale faces and transparent bodies. But they never do palpable damage to property, damage that can be estimated in pounds, shillings and pence. The disembodied spirit which haunts my house must be a larrikin among ghosts. It was on yet another Thursday night, a fortnight after the last incident, that this event took place. We were all sound asleep and we were woken by a hurried knock at the door. On opening it, we found the nursemaid standing there, who said that she and her fellow servants had been awakened in the middle of the night by the heavy touch of something cold and clammy. Horrified beyond measure, they sprang out of bed. They found that their bedclothes were saturated with cold liquid, and the floor of the room was flooded. And striking a light, they saw a stream of water running down through the ceiling. Well, there was nothing peculiarly strange about this. There was a large rainwater tank on the roof of the house and it seemed likely that this tank had burst. We ran upstairs to see what was the matter. The water was running all down the stairs and into the hall below, flooding everything and doing no small amount of damage. To our great astonishment, when we arrived at the upper landing, we found a water tap there fully turned on. We did not inhabit the upper part of the house. Who could have turned it on? It seemed very unlikely that the maidservants would have done such a foolish and mischievous act. Still, of course, suspicion fell upon them. I immediately turned off the tap and began to question them about it, when what was our utter consternation at seeing the tap actually and deliberately turn itself on before our very eyes. This was too much. The house must really be haunted, 
Even the Society for Psychical Research would have found a difficulty in accounting for such a phenomenon. The nursemaid declared she could see a shadowy hand turning it on. We turned the tap off a second time and then removed the key. After this was done, the tap was not turned on again. Evidently, whatever agency was concerned in the matter, it could not act without aid of the key. It took us some time to dry up the flood of water. We had to light fires and to employ all the towels and cloths we could lay hands upon. The ceiling in some places will, of course, have to be replastered. And here I think I must end the record of the mysterious events which have occurred at our haunted house. So that's the end of the story, sort of. Yes, we've got this next little part to try and explain. Yeah, it's a bit of an epilogue that he decided to add at the end to kind of undo all the good scaring work that he'd done in the first half. But I don't know about you, Lee, but I think he's trying to say, look, you know, I don't believe in ghosts. I'm a real man. I believe in science. So here's my scientific explanation as to what went on. You guys can be the judge for yourselves. Yeah, yeah. uh, Take it with a grain of salt, hey? Let me assure you that my tale is in the main a true record. The events related are facts, not fiction. But notwithstanding all that has occurred, I do not believe in haunted houses, nor in ghosts, nor in any other of the vulgar displays of supernaturalism. All the facts can be accounted for simply and satisfactorily enough. The mysterious footsteps were nothing more than echoes. The falling of the stick from the ceiling was due to an ingeniously devised man-trap which had been fixed with invisible threads and subsequently forgotten. The mysterious wrapping and moving of the stick on the floor was due to the fact that the stick had been leaned up against the blind, and the windows not having been quite closed, the blind had slowly waved about with the wind and caused the stick to move with it. The maid, who was frightened by the occurrence, had partaken of an indigestible supper that night and had been tossing about with incipient nightmares. The tremendous noises heard in our room were due to the fact that our room acted as a sounding box to the next room, and the noise caused by the frightened maid jumping out of bed and leaping across the floor, banging and locking the door after her, which no doubt were loud enough in her own room, were intensified tenfold by the resonant action of our room. The rustlings in the chimney and the plaintive moanings were of course due to the winds and the rats and birds in the chimneys. And as to the strange and mysterious turning on and off of the tap, the tap, for some reason or other, had become loose, probably owing to the unequal contraction of its parts. And thus ends the strange story of my haunted house. last segment takes us in a slightly more serious direction and is certainly the most disturbing story that we will be telling you this All Hallows Eve. Written by dead and buried researcher Phoebe Wilkins and narrated by actor Catherine Bennett, the upcoming tale is as macabre as it is troubling. All the more so because unlike ordinary horror tales, this one actually happened. The following story contains graphic references to sex, gruesome medical procedures and abuse. 
It may not be suitable for children, and listener discretion is advised. So begins The Body in the Box. If you want to hide a secret, why not put it in a river? Cutting its brown and bendy way right through the heartland of Melbourne is the Yarra. Being a city river, it's hard to know just how many secrets the Yarra has witnessed and stored in its seedy depths. But every now and then, it lets one slip. If you go to where the Yarra snakes its way through the eastern suburb of South Yarra, you'll find yourself in rowing country, an old favourite tradition in this neck of the woods. And it's with such a leisurely paddle just before Christmas in 1898 that we begin our story, with a boat full of young lads. Francis Logan and Pals were passing between two bridges when a large, mysterious floating object caught his eye. Curious, they paddled towards it. This strange, cumbersome thing turned out to be an enormous wooden boot box, fastened with wire and weighed down with a large stone. Unable to haul the heavy load into the boat, the boys pushed it towards the shore for closer examination. But as this escapade was underway, part of the box fell away exposing a human foot. Upon opening the box, police were faced with a naked body, which had, incredibly, somehow been stuffed into the two-foot-long box. The face of the corpse was blackened and distorted, with eyes starting out of the sockets. Undoubtedly, the police were immediately suspicious and news of the found body quickly spread. The mysterious discovery would become known to the people of South Yarra simply as the body in the box. No doubt, for most of you, this floating box corpse scenario is troubling enough image on its own. But what police would do next adds a further repulsive element to this already terrible crime. In a bid to identify the woman, the police didn't just present a photograph or drawing of the corpse. Instead, her body, her naked, smelling, decomposing body, was put on public display at the Melbourne City Morgue. You might think that most would shun or condemn such a gruesome spectacle, but people flocked to the morgue in thousands. Perhaps some hope to be of help, for surely many sought the voyeuristic thrill of catching a glimpse of the poor creature that was pulled from the river. Before long, however, the victim's body had decomposed beyond recognition. The police, still wanting to make an identification of the mysterious woman, went one step further and removed her head preserving it in methylated spirits. Photographs of the head graced the local papers. Police methods to identify the body were, without a doubt, extreme, at least by our standards, yet they also yielded speedy results. Only five days after the discovery of the box, William Nunn, a publican in South Yarra, came forward. He recognised the victim. Her name was Miss Mabel Ambrose. What series of events had led to the demise of 17-year-old Mabel and her ultimate entonement inside a plain wooden boot box? Mabel had been leading a relatively ordinary working-class life with her mother Mary Descartia and her siblings in Arthur Street, South Yarra. The family home was rented out to them by 20-year-old Travis Todd, one half of Daniel and Todd real estate agents. Todd was known around the southeastern suburbs as a well-respected and good-looking young businessman. In October 1898, Mabel left her mother's home, telling her she was going to work as a housemaid in the Melbourne suburb of Dandenong. But when Mabel didn't come home for Christmas, 
her mother Mary became greatly concerned. In fact, Mabel hadn't been home to see her family since late November. Frantic, Mary began constantly questioning landlord Todd about Mabel's whereabouts, to which he claimed no knowledge, though his manner became increasingly cagey as the questioning continued. You see, young Todd, who came to collect the rent every week, had become close to our Mabel, and they were often seen chatting and laughing together when she lived at Arthur Street. By all accounts, they had seemed downright chummy. What cause would Mr Todd have to lie? He was running a successful business and, by all accounts, had a good reputation. After days and weeks of plying Mr Todd, Mary discovered that Mabel had taken up residence, supposedly as a servant girl, on Osborne Street, South Yarra. This house was rented by Madame Olda Radulowski and Miss Falka Regina de Berkey. Madame Olga also conducted her business there as a palm reader, fortune teller and masseuse. Mary's motherly persistence paid off. Finding the Osborne house would help lead police to uncover the details of the crime. Our Mr Todd was not as upstanding as he so appeared. Young Mabel had been working as a prostitute, at least so said her housemate Thalka, who was in the same line of work. On at least one occasion in October, Todd had met Mabel and had paid her for their intimate relations. And so the scandal, which rocked 1890s Melbourne, truly began. Todd himself claimed that sometime after these liaisons, Madame Olga had read his cards to see his fortune. As the cards told it, however, his fortune was in deep jeopardy. He was, Madame Olga warned, in trouble with the girl, and so recommended that this girl syringe herself with hot water and Condi's fluid, then a commonly used household liquid disinfectant. Yes, you guessed it. That girl in trouble was our Mabel. Taking the wise advice of the fortune teller, Mabel tried the remedy, but to no success. Desperate, Todd then asked Madame Olga to help with more extreme measures to get rid of the problem. Abortion, as you may know, was at the time, of course, illegal and methods used often put the patient at great risk of harm. Yet I bet you'd be hard-pressed to conceive a more disturbing or at best misguided means than that which was to be used on our Mabel. For several weeks in November, she then endured treatment by way of electric galvanic battery. This so-called treatment involved attaching tubes and wires to a woman's womb to bring about a miscarriage. Sadly, there's cause to believe that this practice was used widely enough that it was at least known to the medical profession. Dr James Neild, the surgeon in charge of the post-mortem, testified that while some persons were more susceptible to galvanism, in other words, electrification treatment, it is a process which would not necessarily end in the death of a patient. Even so, Mabel suffered to the point where roommate Falka de Berkey apparently couldn't even stand to be in the same room during her treatments. As matters would unfold, Falka's refusal to be present would allow further and even greater harm to be inflicted upon Mabel. After several long and painful weeks of treatment, Todd gallantly organised for Mabel to be moved into the Osborne Street house. In another show of gallantry by Todd, he continued to have sex with her, supposedly on the advice of Madden Olga, that it would somehow aid in their mission. The group now continued the treatment under the supervision of Dr Gaze, whom they approached after more futile and prolonged attempts. 
Dr. Gaze was a doctor at the Polypathic Institute, an establishment which specialised in a new system of healing and gave the guarantee of absolute certainty of locating disease and cure beyond all reasonable doubt in all cases. Though Dr. Gaze denied he ever prescribed the battery and that he, in fact, nipped Madame Olga's request for assistance in the bud, he nonetheless had the reputation as a doctor who would help girls who found themselves in trouble. Alas, though nothing worked to relieve Mabel of her tricky situation, the group persisted, eventually for one last time. During the final fateful session of the treatment with Madame Olga, it was said that poor Mabel had become delirious and writhed around on the bed. Hearing the screams from upstairs, roommate Falka recalled, it sounded like a sort of muffled scream. I ran out into the dining room and I heard the squeal again. That seemed louder. It seemed like someone in pain. I recognised the voice of the scream as Mabel. I ran upstairs and when I got to the door, the girl Mabel fell back. Madam was holding her up in her arms. She was in bed. She, she fell back on the bed. Her face was black. You see, as far as we can tell, Madame Olga had in fact tried to muffle her patient's groans and cries by pressing her hand firmly over Mabel's mouth. At Falka's sudden appearance at the bedroom door, Madame Olga ordered her to fetch some hot water bottles and brandy immediately. The retrieved hot water bottles were placed around Mabel's heart and feet to try and keep her body warm. While Falka rubbed the brandy into her chest in an attempt to revive her, but in vain, Mabel was dead. Mr Todd soon joined the pair to assist in their predicament. Panicking, they decided to get rid of the body. They cut Mabel's hair, a lock of which Mr Todd kept. She was then stripped naked before they rolled her up in a used flower sack, stamped with snowdrop patent rolled flour. However, because moving Mabel proved to be very difficult, Madame Olga came up with a body-in-the-box solution. And so imagine... They forced her sad, dead body into the boot box. One or more of the trio even stamping her in with their foot. Todd and Thalka loaded the box into the back of the horse and buggy and then drove it through the darkened streets of South Yarra to their planned river burial place, the Williams Road Ferry. When they were finally sure no one else was around, they pushed the box into the water, now weighed down with the heavy rock on its lid. Mabel bobbed in the water for a time before the box slowly sank. Meanwhile, Madame Olga was at home, burning Mabel's clothes and pouring the remaining Condi's fluid down the drain. The trio and Dr Gaze then went about their lives as they had before. But by February 1899, the law caught up with them. Thanks to the inquiries of Mabel's mother Mary and the often unconventional investigations of the police... The four were put on trial for the murder of Mabel Ambrose. What were their fates? From police and court records, it seems that it was mostly Falka who eventually spilled the beans. But it's from her that we get the detailed recounting of the events in Osborne Street. Though Falka's willingness to tell all was perhaps not an entirely unselfish act. Yes, it gave the police a good case, but she managed to avoid what the law may have otherwise had in store for her, being found not guilty for complicity in Mabel's death. Dr Gaze was also found not guilty, though surely you must be thinking the weight of evidence against Madame Olga and Mr Todd ought to have been enough to secure a conviction. 
and so it was. The pair were found guilty of murder and sentenced to be hanged. A murder, the law determined, which was inflicted not by the hideous battery but by suffocation. The force of Madame Olga's hands when attempting to stifle Mabel's harrowing screams was, in the end, her demise. But like many high-profile crimes in the 19th century, the jury's findings were not the end of things. Back then there was this curious kind of loophole to punishment ordered by the courts. The public could plead with the Governor of Victoria for clemency. A petition for their mercy ensued. Todd, it was argued, was little more than a boy who had fallen into this position somewhat thoughtlessly. The petitioners also pleaded on behalf of Madame Olga. Her case, it was put, again involved extenuating circumstances. She struggled with physical infirmities, being extremely deaf and partially blind. She did not treat Mabel Ambrose for the purposes of gain. And so, after all that she had gone through in life and death, Mabel's memory sustained one final blow. Convinced, the governor ultimately granted the petition. Madame Olga and Travis Todd were not only spared the noose, but joined Thalka de Berkey and Dr Gaze in freedom. In contrast, the name Miss Mabel Ambrose would never be let go of, or let alone. In the years since the Yarra gave up this bodily secret, her name would be recalled again and again in the newspapers. In the streets and homes of South Yarra and all over Melbourne, Miss Mabel Ambrose, forever known as the body in the box. And that brings us to the end of our Halloween special. Picture the stately streets of Melbourne City erupting into full-blown riots. Join us next episode to hear about this tumultuous week-long protest which shook 1920s Melbourne to its core. And find out about the Aboriginal campaigners who, despite being targets of extreme racial prejudice, spoke out against the atrocities of Nazi Germany before Australia was even at war. You can jump on our website at deadandburiedpodcast.com to explore the original evidence we use to build our stories and sign up to our mailing list for new story details. If you want to check out some photos, they're on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear your Melbourne history stories too, so drop us an email. And if you enjoyed the podcast, let everyone know with an iTunes review. Dead and Buried podcast is supported by the City of Melbourne and brought to you by bornandbredhistoricalresearch.com.au. We love helping people with historical research, so get in touch. 